there's no such thing as a DEI expert. If you have someone saying that they're a DEI expert, please work the other way. You don't, you do, like just put the spray bottle down. You don't even need the spray bottle. Just take your stuff and go. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Dig News Streams podcast. I'm your host, Dave Capozzi. This week, I welcome my new friend, Clarissa Clo-Fusilier, to the podcast. Clarissa has over a decade of experience in operations slash change management leadership, diversity, equity, and inclusion strategy, and life coaching. She's a fierce advocate for inclusive policies and programs in tech, publishing, and advertising organizations. Her black women-led business, Inclusion Logic, specializes in creating sound DEI strategies for small to mid-sized tech businesses around the U.S. and executive advocacy coaching. This conversation with Clarissa was definitely a timely one, as DEI is coming under a whole lot of fire in U.S. culture right now. I learned a lot, and I'm sure you will too. If you would like to keep up with the podcast, subscribe to whatever platform you're using to listen right now, and you can find a consistent conversation happening over on TikTok and Instagram if you search for my name, Dave Capozzi, and on Facebook and YouTube at Dig News Streams Podcast. Without further ado, my conversation with Clarissa Clot Fusilier. seeing we're witnessing now is like somehow that um DEI went from being just this corporate bubble that only corporate and academia really kind of talked about and functioned in and then it got shot put it into like mainstream where average folks are starting to learn about DEI and the unfortunate part of it is it's being you know explained by the wrong people is being explained by the dissenters instead of those who are champions of the work. And so when you, when you throw something like that up into mainstream and into lexicon without any clear context as a layman who doesn't know anything about it, you will take whatever bias that makes you feel comfortable about what it is, mm-hmm. take that as gospel. And that's yes. what we're seeing right now. Yeah. Same, it's the new CRT, right? It's yeah, the yeah. new misunderstood. It's, it's, it's the new social boogeyman. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which is interesting because I've, the way I've seen it associated with the people associate DEI with hiring um, sort of quotas. So, yeah those two things have become completely mixed together. Whereas DEI efforts from your perspective would be more like what? What would you describe DEI as if you were explaining it to someone who's just coming into this conversation has never heard the term before? I tell folks like DEI is about bringing fairness, operationalizing fairness into the organization that you're in, whether that's corporate, whether that's nonprofit, whatever space that you're in, DEI is not something solely that's corporate or solely academic. It it works everywhere. Whatever space you're in, it's about how can we make sure 
that everyone that is here feels safe, feels recognized as human beings, and their needs are always heard and acted upon. Mm. That's that's really the simple part of it. Like when, I, when people get wrapped around the axle around diversity, equity, inclusion, most of the time, like and even at the beginning of my career in DEI, we'll take time to like define the diversity, the equity and inclusion. People get wrapped around the axle of that. When you really break down equity, it just means fairness. Mm. It just means knowing that what that I'm different than you and that's not a bad thing. That just means that us together needs to work out what helps you succeed and then what helps me succeed and to recognize that they might not be the same things, which makes sense because we're different people. <laughs> yes, with different starting points, different yes, social conditions. Yes. So when you're explaining that to uh, leaders of corporations or small businesses, whoever you're working with, and you're running... Uh, a training or or a workshop or whatever. Do you typically find that people are along that journey with you? And has that shifted since it's become the new boogeyman? Yeah, so I see that it's a mixed bag. Uh, before this kind of blew up into mainstream, there were, you know, it was not uncommon for you to run across, um, we'll just call them like decision makers, the ones that, you know, pay the bills and say the yes and the no's. Uh, of getting them on board that this is something that is valuable to their organization because a lot of people will just chalk it up to HR, like Human Resources 2.0. And that's that's not the same because HR, whether anyone wants to combat it or not, I will die on this hill. HR is built to protect the organization. It, it always was. Like the, the very seeds of human resources was to make sure that you are reducing risk to the organization. So when you inject, when you just use that, that's not enough because in any people oriented field, even as something as human resources, humans need to be at the foundation of that. Like yeah. what human needs are needs to be the foundation of that. Absolutely. Uh, which is why you are, you're starting to see human resource organizations no longer calling themselves human resources. Right. They're calling themselves everything else, like employee experience or something like that to kind yeah. of like it up a bit. But because they have never really like lived up to that title of human resources. Mm. Um, so when we talk about that, like it is because human resources was never built to center people and what their needs are in any organization. It was built to just look at the power dynamics of the organization, it will never solve the problems of making sure that people feel safe and respected and heard at work. Right. And so that's the kind of conversation that I try to have with these decision makers. And because we live in a capitalist society, you know, I try to break it down in terms of loss because I'm like, well, think of it this way. You're spending thousands of dollars to hire, like you want the best and the brightest, right? Yeah. You want only the best and the brightest to work in your organization. That's great. Then why are you only looking at a certain set of people? Why are you creating these job descriptions that are asking for a master's degree? When I ask you, like, is it really a requirement? You can't really have a, you know, a defense of why it's required. You just think that that's just what people would, you would want them to have or expect them to have. Right. But that just means that you're not casting a wide enough net. So how can you say that you want to get 
the best and the brightest, if you only have a narrow focus of what the best and the brightest like resume and things look like, mm, that's good. You're yeah, you're missing out. Yes, absolutely. There's a lot in there, especially talking about human resources and capitalism. You've got people. People are are thought of as capital as well. They're yeah. thought of as a resource rather than as people. And what DEI is doing is very different than what is built into a lot of organizations, which is centering the needs of the workers, yes. right? which yeah. ultimately will be profitable for organizations, but they, they often probably don't see the potential of that. They see other markers yeah. for what it means to be successful. Yeah. And that happens a lot because I can't tell you how many conversations that I've had with these decision makers. And when I bring into question their culture, their human resources leader in them are the first ones to say, oh, there's nothing wrong with our culture. Yeah, of culture's course. great. Right. Like, it's fantastic. Of course. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, um, so what, like, let me see your data. Let, let, let's dig into that. And that's the thing for me is that when people think about DEI, if they're thinking about it in the mainstream way, what they'll hear a lot is that we do a lot of workshops and we do a lot of trainings. Right. Um, that's usually what you do after mm. you do your assessments because I need to know what your company looks like. I need to know how y'all function. I need to know how you hire people, how you recruit them. Um, I need to know like how promotions are done, who makes the calls on these promotions, how is your performance being measured across the board? I dig into all of that. Like that is what really DEI is, is that um, a good practitioner, a good person who's focused on championing it wants to start with where where the problems are, yeah. because I can't just say meet up with a, an organization and say, oh, you just need a, a bias training. That's yeah. all. And just throw it at the wall. But that doesn't really move the needle. Um, <laughs> what you want is a lot of times and because I come from an operational background, which means I'm the person that comes in and changes processes and design business processes, it's a no brainer for me to just be like, I want to like see exactly your entire employee life cycle. Yeah. From the moment that someone sees your um, job description and gets hired or gets their first interview all the way until they decide that they're going to transition out of the company. Mm. Yes. People don't often think about DEI that way. I would, they I really would agree. Don't. And it's funny it's it's funny and sad because uh, a lot of us, a lot of my colleagues, will will get together and we'll do co working sessions and we tell people just like it's really the most unsexiest thing ever. <laughs> like there's not like I, I we feel like like those memes. It's like what my mom thinks DEI is, and we're yeah. probably having these cool shades on and we're standing in front of like all these Fortune five hundred companies like telling them what to do. We're really like building surveys and scraping data and aggregating data and trying to find, you know, where issues lie and like building trainings that are custom to the problems that is specific to that organization. Yeah. Um, those are the things that we spend a lot of our time doing. There's nothing really glamorous or, you know, grifting about it. It's <laughs> lots of laborious number crunching and interviewing people and, and all of that. <laughs> As we know of any kind of change, it's very laborious. It's yes. not, it's not sexy. Right. Exactly. And yeah. I think that's what, 
you know, I try to share with folks who are still trying to understand DEI as a practice hmm. is that it's change management. Yeah. That's what the practice is. Yeah. So when an organization is thinking about this, now we have to sort of understand on some level that all of the social virtue signaling that a lot of these corporations that we know of do mm. is because it impacts and benefits their bottom dollar. So yep. I'm assuming there are some organizations that want you to come in because they see DEI efforts as culturally beneficial to them. It will ingratiate them to sort of the way the culture is moving. Others yep. might genuinely see that they've had some cultural problems and haven't been really great at DEI within their organization. What is it that you see more of either one of those options or there's something that I'm, I'm missing, I'm sure. No, no, I think that's really kind of the two buckets. Um, a more optimistic person who probably had a lot more uh, different mixtures of experience than I did would probably say the latter. But unfortunately for me and a lot of other my colleagues, it's the former. Yeah. Um, that's been what's been very stressful in the DEI community from my perspective is if you're really going in to do the work that I was describing about being able to go in, assess what the what the problems may be, start looking under the hood and build actual change, it gets really, really frustrating when I run across a potential client that more times than not, they're just like, we really just need you to come in and do a little, you know, speech for Black History Month, and then, you know, maybe do a, a, a anti-bias training or right. an unconscious bias training. Right. And then that way we can just kind of like, you know, like it's like a weird grip and grin, like just come in and say hi to the folks and let <laughs> us, you know, tell them how inclusive that we are, yeah. you know, and just, yes. you know, go ahead and exit left. And it's really unfortunate, right? Because like, that's not what we're here to do. Like, that's just we call it DEI theater um, mm. because it's it's very performative and there's and I'm no stranger to it being in the change management field because change is like we said, like you said before, change is always difficult. And there I ran into way more organizations who will be just be combative of like, we just want to look like that we're improving. We yeah. don't necessarily want to make the improvements. Right. We just want our shareholders and everyone to just kind of get off our backs and just feel better that we're, you know, walking the line. And I'm like, well, no, like these, I just had a spray bottle, like, no, <laughs> no, like we need to make these changes. Like it's not about your ego. And that's, that's the part too, like the, the conversations when it comes to that ladder group is you can really assess them really quickly yeah. um, because you can find like the ones that I gravitate to, the clients that I've gravitated to are the ones that come to the table already kind of highlighting their their honest assessment of themselves, you know, of like we like I like one client that I worked with, they haven't had anything that, you know, triggered them to say, hey, we need to get, you know, some DEI support in here to help us create a better organization. Mm they were just realizing that they did not have that expertise and they wanted their organization to be better. That's and great. so they reached out saying we need help and we don't know exactly what we're doing, but we have an idea of what we want our goals to be. We just need someone to help us along the way, hmm. but I want us to be, 
we want us to we want to get the right people we want our good people to be able to feel safe and stay like this is the right thing to do like Oof. that's the hard part people just being into be able to say like this is the right thing to do <laughs> it just keeps you from being an a-hole how about that? <laughs> how about that mr ceo that's good it just, you know um and and like you said with this capitalistic shell this bubble that we're in it's hard to have those real discussions because you want to be able to have that but you know that those decision makers only speaks dollars 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 yeah, absolutely um and so that's how in the in like in the beginning of my career about seven eight years ago there was a, a business case for dei that we used to rotate mm. and kind of talking about Here's how it, you know, helps your your bottom line. And then we stopped. A lot of us practitioners stopped because it was still reinforcing the things that we're trying to get away from in DEI. DEI is actually anti-capitalist. That's mm, the hard yes. part of doing right. this work. Right. It is so hard. Yeah. Because I, there really is no real business case for DEI. Yes. It's because you have human beings working in your company and you need to care about those human beings. Yeah. It ultimately does feel like if you're doing good DEI work, it's like doing anti-racist work and it's going to be fundamentally disruptive in a white supremacist society. So Bingo. this kind of outcry that is happening is almost a necessary disruptive kind of thing, right? Because mm -hmm. if it weren't happening, then DEI work is just like patting people on the head and saying, keep going. But it is and disrupting some organizations. Yeah, very much so. And like the despite what you might see in like the media about, you know, a lot of people like there are like, I mean, I live in Texas. There definitely are some repercussions, some very sad repercussions of us rolling back, the governor rolling back DEI efforts in universities because yeah. the scholarships have been defunct because of that. Wow. Scholarships that helped underrepresented folks to be able to get access into universities have been drastically cut and dissolved. Wow. Um, UT uh, is dealing with, you know, some other organizations that had, you know, uh, college camps and things to help bring access and availability. Accessibility is a really huge part of DEI, is that yeah. if you want to cast a broader net, net you have to be able to make your, you know, we need to remove the gates and try to help people get in those spaces that they need. Yeah. And those things get cut off when you do something damaging, like codifying anti-DEI into your state. Like there's going to be you know, like lots of damage caused by that. And it's really sad. To it see. is. It's very true. And the challenges that you'd face in a place like Texas would be very different than the challenges that are faced in a place like Boston. Yeah. Um, but there are still those challenges, right? Mm -hmm. You're still facing, you're up against it. Yeah. So yeah. when when you're in Texas and you're facing all of this stuff and people have this stuff in their mind where they're already fine, racism's not a problem anymore. Everyone's setting like on an equal footing. Mm -hmm. You're have you're having to come with a message that that's not true. You're having yeah. to start with convincing people that that's not true. <laughs> and so I wonder what you think about um these signs have become very popular in more liberal places like where I live that say like science is real, um, everybody is welcome. And then it'll say something like diversity makes us stronger. And all of it sounds great, but I think what you, you might be able to give us a firsthand experience of this. I would say diversity is disruptive and dangerous 
to white supremacist societies because it's not it doesn't make you stronger maybe in the very long term but what it does is it disrupts the power structures yes and so i think people want to think sort of utopian in that yeah we should all just be together and don't want to go to that place well it then is going to require all this data that you're talking about and all of the assessments of where are we still upholding these structures and systems yes because this is the thing no one wants to be painted as the bad guy and you and i know it. we see people all the time wanting to you know posture with their ego on that and Yes, like DEI in its source is very disruptive because, and it's funny that you mentioned about disrupting the power, the, the power uh, struggle and power uh, structure, because we're the ones of us who like to push that kind of practice, we're considered the radicals in the space. Okay. We're considered the radicals in the space because there's this, there's this weird camp in you know in corporate DEI structure and even academia too a little bit I can't speak to that as much because I'm not really in from that space but from you know the practice space it is become because we don't want to lose our I'm just going to be real here I'm going to keep it a buck please we don't want to lose our coins so what what whatever the decision maker wants because remember when we talked about going in and change you have a lot of the organizations who want to appear that they're making change but not necessarily move the needle so if you go in there and play nice and kind of only do the bare minimum that makes the decision makers who a lot of times still uphold white supremacy culture, Mm. then you'll be able to stay and you'll make your coin and you'll be safe. Yeah. But if you are a individual who believes the practice is about changing your organization structure, changing your processes to where it benefits, you know, more of the humans in your organization, (laughs) they're most likely not going to give you a call back. (laughs) (laughs) It's that makes so much sense because I've been in DEI trainings that are very cookie cutter. I'm like, oh, it makes sense why the organization would want this, you know? Yeah. Like if you if you come to the table and you're going to like, sure, I'll give you a a, a training, a a, you know, a DEI training, you know, and I'll I'll grip and grin for you. Um, then they'll keep you because you're not a threat, and they'll you get your money. And like you'll you'll do your things. But if you're coming in saying, I'm coming in and I'm going to change this, you need to change that. You need to change your power structure and how you're doing this. You're going to have to say, whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah. We just wanted to look awesome. Right. <laughs> we wanted to just look inclusive. Can't we just put a banner on our LinkedIn, you know, company yeah. thing or do a black square or something like that? Something that makes us look, you know, a little hip. But <laughs> that, that is that is it. It's it is the same thread that goes throughout all of society. When something yeah. is culturally beneficial, then you throw that square up. As soon as it becomes not so comfortable, then you're retreating and pushing that away. I, there's something else that really that I've noticed in pretty much every training or conversation about DEI within an organization that I've been a part of is that black, brown, indigenous, and other people of color will be one or there'll be like one or two of those groups within the room. One or two people, individuals, the larger group is white, white bodied Mm -hmm. individuals. What, 
do you notice about those challenges? And you talked about making a safe space for everybody. Ultimately, those spaces are not so safe for people who experience the things that are being talked about. What does it look like for you to navigate those spaces and to walk that line of I'm, I'm, I'm hired by this company. I know they might not like the way that this goes. Some of these employees might not, might not like the way that this goes. What does that look like for you in those conversations? Yes. So when it does come to actually doing trainings, um, the, the thing about it is, is there, there's a mixture. Like when I do, and this is spe- specifically to my practice, when I do workshops, they are something that by nature are inclusive of everyone. Mm. Because like, so I'll give you an example. So there was an incident that happened with a client where there was an individual who said something uh, very anti-LGBTQ about another employee, basically saying the only reason why they didn't get laid off is because they were queer. Yeah. Um, another person heard that. They didn't really necessarily do anything until late. And then the whole situation kind of blew up and it made like a employee relation issue. And so when we started dissecting that and talking about it, it's like, okay, well, I'm seeing a hole where there's people who don't feel comfortable being an upstander. Well, you you have some bystander intervention problems here because Mm -hmm. this is not making a safe environment. If you have someone who's hearing something clearly that's against your policy and how you want people to work in your organization, but no one knows what to do or they don't feel comfortable of how to do those things, we need to educate those individuals to be able to do those things. Mm. So we're building a bystander intervention training. And that's something that everyone can be a part of. Yes, absolutely. What I've seen, and I've seen this uh, drastically have some problems is when some DEI practitioners or companies want to go and they want to do this anti-racism kind of round table discussion where mm. they put everybody in a room and want to talk about that. And that's when you see ah. these groups of like all white people and like these little sprinkles of black and brown folks. And it's normally done. And I don't approve of this. And I try to work with my mentees to keep them from doing this is that our first mantra is first do no harm mm-hmm. and it's always to to protect the the people who are marginalized first yeah and so when you're constructing these type of round tables and discussions it's not to say you should not do them it's to stop and ask yourself who is who is going to be the most vulnerable people in here yeah it's going to be the people who have to hear all of these white people potentially saying these things that they do not want to hear. They don't need to be in the room to hear this. And what you'll see is this HR will step in with mm-hmm. their risk assessment and say, well, if we remove them and only do like the white employees, yeah, can't that's do going it. to be seen as discriminatory. Right. Like, can't do it. No. <laughs> no, that is not. <laughs> that's the spray. That's when Chloe comes out with the spray bottle. No. no. Spray. <laughs> that that's is not good. you're you're giving training to people who need like think about it this way. If you are having a training that is focused on a accounting software, mm. you're not going to have everybody in the room who's not in accounting in that same training, right. are you? No. It's the same thing. If you're going to treat 
all of these trainings as if they're focused on your employees based on what they need and how they can grow as an individual, it's okay to be discerning on who's a part of that. Yes, absolutely. You don't need to treat this as some separate entity. And that's the problem that we see. Whenever you introduce DEI into a lot of these organizations, they treat it as if it's this weird stepchild that kind of hangs in the the hover somewhere Mm. and they just pull it in when they feel like they need it. And a lot of times they do that when some S hits the fan. When someone does say something inappropriate and yep. there is a big employee relations issue that blows up. Yep. Because when that did happen, my client did call me. They were like, oops, we have this situation. We need you again. How okay. do we pull this out? <laughs> okay. Right. Well, so they probably may they may not have been aware of that situation in the past or that didn't have the opportunity to make its way up the ladder. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's ultimately a lot of the work that you're doing is bringing awareness to these things. I wonder now, are there barriers that a lot of companies that might have been open to considering that there are some ways that they fall short of their goals? There are there barriers to them reaching out to you now, or are there, is there more of a doubling down on both sides? Are the companies that are, you know, really for it are like, no, we're all for it. And the companies that are against it and always have been are against it. Like, what have you seen on that level? I would say there's three pockets. So I would say that there's a bucket of those who are still like, despite, even in Texas, despite of what, you know, has happened to the anti-DEI in the university space, in the private sector, there's a lot of private organizations just like, that doesn't concern us. We're still going the same path that we're going nice. because we're seeing the results. A lot of times you'll see those in the bucket who've already been doing the work and they've been actually doing the work properly. Mm. They're starting to see results. And that's how it is in any kind of change management work, right? Once you see some of the proof in the pudding, it's it's over. They're going to continue with it because they know it still works. That's good. Those are the decent ones. That's the decent bucket, right? <laughs> the decent but, bucket. <laughs> the, the the kind of middle bucket is there's some that were kind of on the fence, maybe learned a little bit about the the need for DEI and where it kind of fits, but they do have a barriers of like, well, I don't know who to go to because mm-hmm. finding us is actually not easy. Mm-hmm. Um because there's 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 millions of us at this point, I'm sure. Yeah. But it's not like there's some central place or some hub or something where you can just go and like find a DEI practitioner, yeah. right? So that's a real problem of them being able to find us. Um, but and so that could be a barrier. And also they could be a little skittish by things that they see in the news because sure. there there has been, you know, different firms and organizations who have systematically just rolled back and cut ties to all of their DEI saying, we just don't want that smoke and we just rather just do away with it. And so you have those in the middle bucket that are kind of straddling the fence of like, do I want to take this risk or is it not worth it? And if mm. I do, how do I find the right people? Like that's, that's the, I would call them the analysis paralysis bucket. Ooh, nice. Yeah. Not quite sure where to go. Yeah. And then of course you're going to have that third bucket of just like, see, I told you it wasn't worth that time. That's way more headache than it was worth. We don't want to touch it. Yeah. So you're working within 
sort of those other two buckets. Yeah, the first two buckets. Yeah. yeah. You do bring up something about all these different sort of DEI practitioners that are out there that the that you might be hard to find because there's so many people that are doing it and they do have a lot of choices. And depending on the organization, they might choose someone that's not going to be radical, as you say. Um, they might pick someone that is more sort of like, yeah, whatever you need, you know, we're here to service your needs and we'll do it. We'll do a bias training for you. We'll do all that, you know, but you're making that choice to say, I'd prefer my integrity <laughs> over, yeah. over the coin. Did and that feel like a conscious choice for you at the beginning or was it just, this is the way you're built and you just didn't have any options. This is what you do. <laughs> <laughs> I've I've always I've always um been gifted to see power structures and power dynamics and everything mm. and then realizing how damaging it could be when you don't pay attention to those power structures and yeah. I became I would say after 2 years of doing like DEI work it was very apparent when you're in these rooms because you do have access to these really top decision makers and in these boardrooms discussions to really get an insight of how people function when they're running these Fortune 500 companies and making these decisions. And a lot of it is just spun around ego and power and money. And you doing this work will instantly feel like you don't fit here. Yeah. That's the that's the signal that I that I feel. Hmm. But in the the end of it all is that the reason it's funny, I call myself an HR reject. Because before, <laughs> I, before I got into tech, I was really thinking about, you know, going and get my master's in human resources because caring about people and having them feel valuable at their job always mattered to me. It just always did. And so I felt that that would seem like the, the proper trajectory for me to move into. Um, I think I felt like I dodged a bullet there in a way because there's a lot of people and those who are in that space who have complained that it's not very people focused. And so having this trajectory that I had to see those power structures and then see the truth behind a lot of HR programs and structures, I seemed to like, it made sense that once I realized DEI was a thing, I did the work without knowing that it was called something. A lot yeah. of us did. Yeah. But it just seemed to like make sense of that. Okay. I don't want to shirk my integrity in order to do this work because I've seen the effects. I've seen, I've had really great talent come into organizations that I've worked in. Hmm. And they looked like me, black, brown, indigenous folks, queer folks, disabled folks who were treated like garbage. Yeah. And their talent was awesome. And yeah. I would ultimately see them leave and their perpetrators stay. And it just started lighting a deeper fire in me. It's like, I don't want to be a party to that. I don't yeah. want to be someone that says, I want to come in and change your organization and get some coin and then find out that I'm not really making change for those people. They're depending on people like us to come in and make that change. So what am I doing just caring about my check? Mm. I'm going in to try to help people, but I'm not doing a very good job at it. It's just, I don't, I don't know, dude. I don't know. It's just, good. It's good. It's just, I'm here. I'm sitting here listening to you and I have in my ear, the pushback to DEI as you're speaking. I'm like, 
do people hear themselves when they're pushing back against what you just said? Like, is there a, is there a possibility that can, someone can pause for a moment and hear that you've said, I care about the worker that's not being represented. You know, for me, that sounds like the profits of our, not P-R-O-F-I-T-S, the, like, you know, the prophetic voices, the people that are trying to call the culture or the organization to its highest ideals, the ones that they claim they want to stand for, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. so you're, you're constantly in this place of having to just like validate your existence as a practitioner, as a person. And do you, you know, you mentioned that you have some of these cohorts and stuff, but do you have the space that you can come together with other people and sort of fill back up? Or is this a very lonely sort of isolating kind of job that you have? Oh, Dave, you picked that up, Gab. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. It's okay. Um, you know, so there there are, for, so I'll talk about it from my perspective. Um, it is very lonely. It could be very isolating um, because I'm, I'm also part of, so you have in-house DEI practitioners where you have, you know, people hired to be in those organizations and their whole full-time job is to work on DEI work. Yeah. I work outsource. I'm freelance. So I go in. And so from my perspective, when it's, when you're a freelancer, it's even more isolating. I would imagine. And then you're more aware of this capitalist shell that you're in Hmm. because what me and a couple of my colleagues that we, we've kind of gravitated to each other because we needed that community. The DEI space still has a lot of work to do, in my opinion, Hmm. on actually building community. And I blame a a big piece of it on capitalism, actually. Yeah, yeah. Because, like I said, there's probably a million of us easy in the DEI freelance space. But you have this kind of zero-sum mentality that still exists within this space. I bet. Which means I don't really want to partner with you because you might take my business that means that's a less contract that I don't get, yep, which absolutely. means I potentially may go hungry. Yes. Makes so much sense. So we're seeing a lot of that now where it's just very isolating. There's lots of us who want to be able to build partnerships because like a lot of us are still critical of the DEI space because we're in it. I think when you yeah. we love the work and you respect it. You have to be critical of it. You have to be able to ask those questions. Yes. And the part of it is we need to be able to do these partnerships because there's no such thing as a DEI expert. If you have someone saying that they're a DEI expert, please go <laughs> the other way. <laughs> you don't, you do, like just put the spray bottle down. You don't even need the spray bottle. Just take your stuff and go. And go. <laughs> just, yeah. Yeah. No spray bottle is going to work in that situation. No spray bottle is going to work in this case. It's not. Um, Because I tell folks that the the DEI umbrella is so broad. Think about a human being. There's so many facets to us. Our race, our gender, our sexuality, our socioeconomic status, you know, our our disability, um, home, whether you're houseless or not. All of these things determine how we walk through the world. Yeah. And DEI, being able to be a good practitioner 
is part education, part lived experience. And so for me, if I'm going in and doing my assessment of an organization, I might find that that same client, like there might need to be some more support in uh, assessment done from someone who is part of the LGBT community, who is versed in this in the DEI space. That's not necessarily my wheelhouse. Yeah. And I'm okay with that because I need to be able to partner with someone else in the DEI space who has that proper skill set. Because at the end of the day, Dave, it's not about my ego. It's about helping the people who are the most vulnerable in that space. I yeah. let my ego go. And I'm not going to say, oh, I'm going to try to do that too. I'm going to try to make that work. That's how we have DEI practitioners go in and cause harm mm. in these organizations because they're trying to do all the things. Yes. And there's no way you can do all the things. You have yeah. to be able to pass the torch to someone who is more skilled for this, the issue that they're dealing with. That's so good. Yeah, it's like any family, right? If you can criticize your own family, but as soon as someone comes in and they start to criticize your family, it's a very different thing, right? Yeah. So like yeah. you you saying these things about DEI is very different than the way that culture might be like, yeah, see, DEI is problematic, different. And then for you to be able to navigate this space on your own, I do think there's a difference between the way you do things and someone that's hired because oftentimes you see those jobs actually are underneath human resources, mm -hmm. those DEI jobs. Now, I imagine those are very challenging positions to be in because you have to still think about the company's bottom line in a way that someone like you don't have to as much. Yeah. Right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's the other piece of why I think the community in the DEI space struggles a bit is because there's a little bit of chasm of those who are in-house versus those who are outsourced. And there's a chasm between those who are practitioners and those who are academic, meaning they they do the theories, but they don't put them into practice. Yeah. But we're the ones who are putting those theories into practice. And these two camps aren't talking with each other very well. Mm. And that's where we need to get better. And I think that's what made us, and I'm just speaking from my own opinion, I feel like that's what kind of made DEI kind of an easy target to white supremacy jargon and culture is because we still are pretty nascent and we mm. haven't quite connected our solidarity between all of our fields pieces together. That and makes so sense. It makes it, when, when you have that kind of scatter, it's easy to take pot shots at everybody. Yes. It's easy to take pot shots in the field itself because we haven't had the chance to really pull ourselves together and come with like, really good data and really good like solidarity between each other to say this is what we're about this is actually what we do what you're seeing is you know people now being able to pick and choose champions to to speak on DEI and it's kind of comical in a way when I see these panels on like CNN and all that there's not a single person with melanin in the whole bunch wow and if they do they're playing into that group that just, I want to make them feel comfortable so I can get my coin. So Oof. that's okay. That does bring up a challenge that I wonder, you know, what your, <laughs> I wonder what your perspective is on this, uh, white folks who do the work you do. Um, I'm assuming you run across people that do. I'm assuming you hear from people that do. How mm -hmm. often 
do you find that someone who is a white-bodied individual is doing the kind of work that an organization would need to kind of move and change in the way that you think a co- an organization would need to move and change in order to service their employees the way that you have sort of organized your way of thinking around it? How often do you see someone that's white on that same trajectory that does DEI? It, there are a few, and I would say the ones that I have seen are the ones that actually have one or more marginalized identities attached to them. Got it. Um, If you are a cis white male, straight Christian, all those things, you're probably not going to do a great job. Mm-hmm. Um Cause, cause here's the thing and like no one really talks about and, you know, me and my colleagues talk about it because we've, we've seen trainings and certificates that sprout up. Like the, the DEI certification economy has like exploded over oh, the past six years. I bet. Now everyone was like, you do, you pay this like thousands of dollar fee and we're going to get you certified in DEI. You're, and- sir, you're a master. You've mastered DEI. Yeah, you master DEI now. <laughs> Welcome. Go in and make like thousands of dollars. Um, but you know, it's because you have to be able to work on yourself first. Um, the level of self-awareness, the internal and external self-awareness that you have to have is is I would say almost next level. Mm. It really needs to be a part of like a mixture of compassion, high emotional intelligence, being able to communicate on multiple levels, and then also checking your ego. You as a white practitioner needs to understand that you have limitations to what you can talk about, speak on and practice. Yeah. And that's no different than me. What I was using the example before is like, if my client needs more help and support from the LGBTQ perspective, then I'm not going to fit myself into that box and try to do that work for them because I am not qualified to do that. Mm. We need to get out of the ego of feeling like we can do all the things. It's okay for you not to know. It's okay for you not to have the skill set. It's okay to say that that's a limitation. That's how you build partnerships. Hey, so- hey, I don't know how to do this. Hey, Jane, I know how to do that. Let's get together and make this <laughs> work it just doesn't sound like conversations that white men have my friend and this is why this is why i actually think it's so comical that you just framed it that way because this whole thing has been around hiring the most qualified person for the job right yeah white men are not qualified for this job (laughs) so like we're not getting hired for it that's why we're so upset about it (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and like I'll, I'll chuck a number at you um, that we found out about last year is that less than like four percent of chief diversity officers are part of Black and Brown community. Less than four percent, you said. Yep. The majority of CDOs, the majority of chief diversity officers, identify as white. Well, that makes sense. Okay, right. So. There's shock and not shock at all, right? Because yeah, exactly. Because it's um, it makes sense. And when you say the thing about understanding that you don't know everything and that you can't cover every area, that is not something that someone like myself grows up thinking in this country. Oh no, 
You can do all the things. You can be anything you want. Exactly. You can do anything. Like who tell who is someone to tell you that you don't belong in doing this work? Exactly. You can do anything. Right. And that that coupled with I love that you bring up this idea that white men typically aren't going to be great in this space because we don't have the barriers to entry for anything at any level in the society. When you don't face those barriers to entry, your ego is preserved for a very long time. Yes. So it's very difficult to be, and this is what we see in all kinds of interactions. Ego is first, it's upfront. There's mm-hmm. no, all these like, all these things around like, I think it's Ben Shapiro's like the facts over feelings guy. He's all up in his feelings at all times. Yeah. Right? Yes. yes. It's always ego first, always. And if you're in a position like that, where you're trying to actually meet the needs of the people, which is why you didn't go into HR, as you said, you wanted to actually meet the needs of the people, then ego is going to be the worst, your biggest enemy. Yes. Oh, yes. Because you're not going to know when to put the pin down and when to pass the pin to somebody else. Mm. You think that you can do all the things and you're going to cause harm. There's a lot of us and I have been brought in at least three times just this year to clean up after other DEI practitioners, most of them white, comes in and cause damage to the community and the employees that they were supposed to be helping. And it causes a chasm for the next practitioner to come in Mm. and fix it because you've, you've lost trust. Yeah. You've broken trust Yeah, and you've hurt people and they will remember that and they will tie that to your organization because the buck stops with you. You made the call to bring this person in and make these changes um, it's like, like, you know, last year, the Uber, um, head of DEI, you know, did a training. Yes. With, like the, the whole Karen being like a, a slur and, and these things. And she had individuals and like, you have these focus groups and these employee resource groups. She broke all the rules. You're supposed to be listening to them. When right. I go into these organizations, I want to listen to you. If you're saying that, this not might not, not might might not be a good idea or this might be damaging to us. Put your ego down for a second and listen. There it is. The 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 and, and I say this because I said before, like it's this work is part lived experience, part education. You as a, a straight white individual can come in and get all the degrees, all the DEI certifications that they're pushing out though. Yeah out there. But if you don't really have that lived experience, you're going to have a hard time connecting empathy. Yes. And that's what you need in order to be able to set your ego down and decenter yourself and actually do the work. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. I hope this conversation inspired some new thoughts or questions within you. Until next time, peace, my friends.